Father, we ask now for your blessing on our time in your word tonight. As always, we ask, Lord, that it would be beneficial to us, it would be profitable to us, that, Father, we would learn a great deal, that our thinking would be changed as well as challenged, that, Father, we may think those things, think your thoughts after you, and again, live our lives in a way that honors you in every way. We thank you, Father, again for your ongoing presence with us, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Over the last several weeks, we have been continuing to look at verse 4 of Ephesians 6, where we've been talking about uh, where there's this command of Paul where he tells fathers in particular, but it's a, it's a command to both parents to not to provoke their children to wrath, uh, but to train them in the admonition of the Lord. And we want to make sure that we you know, have a, a pretty good understanding of that because it's a very broad yet strong and specific statement. And we want to make sure that we grasp the responsibilities that we have as parents, the responsibilities we have as Christians to see that children, our children, and the children of others are raised correctly, uh, that they are raised in the Lord. Again, it doesn't mean there's only one way to do it. It doesn't mean everybody has to kind of become cloned parents. But there's very much this uh, pressing, a sense of urgency of this responsibility uh, that when it comes to us, when it comes to raising our children. And too often what can happen in the lives of busy people, and a lot of times that word would describe a lot of young families, they're busy. In their busyness, unfortunately, the thing that often suffers the most is the training in the things of God. It suffers. Church becomes sporadic, if at all, and we need to remember that that is communicating very strongly a message to the children of that family, and that is that God is just not important, and we just make time for God if there is time. And that's a powerful thing to be um, pounded into the minds and hearts of children. But that's exactly what takes place. It doesn't mean that the parents are intending to do that. It often means they haven't been thinking about it. But that is exactly what's taking place. Uh, the way we live our lives communicates so much more than just what we say. And if we just give lip service to God, that, in a sense, makes all those things worse. It magnifies the hypocrisy. Because we're saying one thing, in a sense, out of the side of our mouth, yet our lives are screaming that that's just not true. And uh, as a result of that, uh, children grow up, and they may grow up in a Christian home. They might even agree that they grew up in a Christian home. They might even say they grew up in church. Uh, but that is a large part, a large influencing factor Maybe it's a major influencing factor as to why over, and again, I don't know what the exact number is, the percentages run between 80 and 90% of all kids who go to college who came from quote-unquote Christian homes before the first year is over no longer consider themselves to be Christians uh, or will say they've lost their faith or will say they never had faith. That's an incredible number. And it's not just because there are secular or anti-Christian professors in those schools. It's because when they walk in, when they walk on those campuses, they've got nothing behind them. There is, there's no, uh, there are no real, there's no real foundation. There are no real convictions, and they're just wide open for uh, to be uh, deceived, and that's what takes place. So when it comes to the, to the raising of our children, God has placed on parents the responsibility the primary responsibility to teach them 
both, uh, it's not the word officially, uh, but, but the idea is, is you want to intentionally teach them about God, not only purposely at set times, but in the way that you live your life. Everything that we do is communicating things to our children. As we've worked our way through 1 Corinthians 13 and the definition of love, I've tried to use examples to show us how we are to love our children in that way and demonstrate and display to them the character of God and what we're trying to shape them to be as we try to shape them to be individuals who love the Lord and emulate the character of Jesus Christ. Last week we ended with this, and that is that another way that we can provoke our child to anger is when we seek to become the ultimate authority in their life instead of showing them the importance of following the Lord. Again, it doesn't mean that the individual or the parent has necessarily purposely set out. They don't say, I am the only authority in your life. But once again, if God is in place on the back burner, then that is what you're declaring. You are declaring that you are the sole authority in their life, that they are to do things because you have said Every now and then you may say that God has said we should do such and such. Every now and then you may point to the Bible. But too often what happens is that just goes by the wayside. And what we end up stressing is our authority uh, in their life. And we become ultimate. And of course that becomes uh, uh, an even larger problem for them spiritually. So I want us to go through, first, uh, through uh, Ezekiel 18. I think it's a very important passage for us to grasp. So as we read through it, I'm going to stop at times and point some things out that are important to us to understand. The main things that we're looking at here is, once again, is, that what, is the uh, power of influence, but also the weakness of influence. And what I mean by that is this, is that if, let's say we have two parents, and let's just say they're lousy parents, they are responsible for being lousy parents to their children. And God holds them accountable for that. At the same time, their failure is never an excuse that God allows their children to have for them not walking with the Lord. He still holds them fully responsible for their sin. So God holds each group responsible for what they've done. So the parents then not only are responsible to God for failing to uh, teach their children or raise them correctly, but they're then are going to be held responsible for some of the things that the children actually end up doing as a result of that. But that doesn't mean that the children are held any less responsible for what they do, for what they do, because God has created us in His image, and part of that is the way that we are able to think. And we'll see that I think in this passage as we work our way through this. And and what kind of led me to this was because of the work that I did in the jails and working with uh, drug addicts and alcoholics and and whatnot for a real long time. Um, I just always had a hard time with the <clears throat> with the model that individuals or that our society tends to adopt when it comes to trying to help individuals who have various forms of addictions. And uh, you just can see the inconsistencies uh, in the models that are being used. And I've always been troubled by the way our society approaches the problem because it just didn't seem to be logical. It didn't seem to be right. It didn't seem to be rational. Because on one hand, you're excusing the behavior, and then on the other hand, you know, you're throwing them in the prison for 30 years for what they've done. Well, well which is it? You know, what, what's going on here? How do we understand addiction? And I think that um, what's happened is that, like, for example, they'll say this. We'll use the example of abuse because this is where the strongest figures are. Uh, they'll say that over 80-some percent of men who grow up in homes where they have witnessed violence, meaning 
they've witnessed their father or some other significant man in the family who's been violent towards their mom or towards other women in the family, there's an 80, 85, 90% chance that they will be abusive themselves in some way to the women in their life. And so then the conclusion is, is that a violent home causes a violent home. However, when you arrest a man for being violent and you find out he came from a violent home, you don't go arrest the dad too. We only arrest that guy. We hold him fully responsible for what he's done. There's an, there's an inconsistency. He's being told by the psychiatrist. He's being told by the psychologist. It's not really all his fault because how he was raised. And then there's not a whole lot of answers given to him how he's going to be able to overcome his problem except maybe to try a few techniques on how to control his anger. And that just doesn't deal with the issues. So beginning in verse 4 of Ezekiel 18, it reads this way. Look, every life belongs to me. The life of the father is like the life of the son. Both belong to me. The person who sins is the one who will die. Now, even though there are some application here when, we, when it comes to salvation, we're dealing here with just physical life and death and responsibility for sin, responsibility for life, and those things. And God here says that each life belongs to him, meaning each life is accountable to God. And we believe that. We believe that there's a coming judgment for every single individual. Every individual is going to have to give an account of themselves to the Lord. You and I believe as believers that we will not have to give an account of our sin because our sin has already been judged. We've acknowledged our sin. Our sin has been judged uh, in Christ. So therefore, we are not going to go through that judgment. We know that our works will be judged for their quality and we will be rewarded for that. But the believer never has to worry about standing before God and having to answer for sin because that's been dealt with by Christ. So here, he's talking about this responsibility or accountability we have to God, and then he, and then he states out uh, the main premise, which is the person who sins is the one who will die. God holds that individual responsible for their sin. It's an important principle for us to remember in, in raising our children. We don't want to give mixed messages to our children. You have a right, and you should, I believe at times, show mercy to your children when it comes to disciplining them. But we want to make sure that they always understand what mercy is, what discipline is, and that we don't allow ourselves to become, I guess you would say maybe lazy, and we don't follow through as we ought to follow through. Because it begins to give them a very warped view of what it means to be accountable for what we do. Uh, they, there are times when they believe they can just arbitrarily get away with stuff because they can arbitra- because we sometimes arbitrarily just let things go. That's why it requires a lot of energy to be a good parent, you know, because we, we have to be consistent. Um, I do think that in the end it takes less energy if we remain consistent than if you're all over the place. Uh, but that we'll talk about that another day. So verse 5. Now he's going, to begin, he's going to go through some examples to help us to really grasp what he's getting at here. So he says in verse 5, Now suppose a man is righteous and does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines, or raise his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife, or come near a woman during her menstrual impurity. He doesn't oppress anyone, but returns his collateral to the debtor. He does not commit robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with clothing. He doesn't lend at interest, or for profit, but keeps his hand from wrongdoing, and carries out true justice between men. So here he's describing the life of this righteous man. This righteous man is righteous spiritually. 
He is not, obviously he's not uh, worshiping idols because it says that. When it says that he doesn't eat at the mountain shrines, that can be one of two things. Um, there were times that Israel was guilty of having astral poles up in the high places. Sometimes that would be where they would go to worship other gods, but sometimes that's where they would go instead of going to the temple. In other words, they, would, they say that they were worshiping the God of Israel, but they were doing it in a way that was not approved by God. Or whether it was because of laziness or convenience or whatever the case happens to be, there was a problem with them doing it that way. They were treating God as if he was like the other pagan gods and they weren't obeying him and the things that he said. But this man is not doing that. He is doing those things that are right. He's morally right because he's not committing adultery. He's not oppressing individuals. Uh, he's honest in his dealings. He's not committing robbery. Uh, we also see that he cares for those who are poorer than him. He gives food to the hungry. He gives clothing to those who are naked. Uh, he doesn't try to take advantage of those that are in a bad position. So he doesn't uh, lend at interest. Um, and uh, so he also looks out for other people, trying to make sure there's justice being carried out in the lives of others. So this man is, is a righteous man. He's living as a true Israelite. Uh, is expected to live. So verse 9, then make sure that we understand what's just been explained to us. He follows my statutes and keeps my ordinances, acting faithfully. Such a person is righteous. He will certainly live. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So this man is going to be blessed in his life. He is doing what God wants him to do. And everybody would agree. Well, of course this guy is going to live. Of course he's going to be blessed. Look at how he's living. Well, now, verse 10, now suppose the man has a violent son who sheds blood and does any of these things, though the father has done none of them. So we have a righteous man, and he has a son who is going in the opposite direction. What we do know, based on how this man is described, the son is aware of his father's righteousness. Okay, so he's aware of his father's righteousness, and he does those things that his father doesn't do. And verse 11 again stipulates that. The father hasn't done any of them. Indeed, when the son eats at the mountain shrines and defiles his neighbor's wife, when he oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, and does not return collateral, when he raises his eyes to the idols, commits abominations, and lends at interest or, or for profit, will he live? He will not live. Since he has committed all these abominations, he will certainly die, and his blood will be on him. So basically what we're talking about here is that God is going to judge him. Now remember that what we're setting out here is the, uh, in, in most cases, this is how things play out. We are already very aware of what Ecclesiastes has pointed out to us, that even though this should be the norm, we sometimes see those who are evil and we don't see God's judgment coming on them when maybe we think it should come on them. There, it doesn't mean they're going to escape God's judgment, God has his plans and his reasons for why all these different types of things happen, but this is the normal course of things. And we see here that this individual is, again, being held completely responsible for his father's, uh, I mean, for his own sin. So what we see here are several things that we can draw from this. Number one, just because a father does what is right doesn't mean automatically his sons will follow. Uh, when you read in the Old Testament, uh, there are fathers who get in trouble because they don't teach their sons the right things. There was an individual, famous individual in the Old Testament, who got in big trouble because his sons were acting very wickedly, and God got on him because he said nothing. He, was, he didn't even try to stop them. 
There's, there's no expectation in there that I can read that God expected him to be able to stop them in their tracks. But he didn't make the attempt. He said nothing. And God's judgment was pretty hard uh, on him when it came to that. So, what we, so as we kind of put all these different things together as we work our way through this, we want to remember what's being said to us in Ephesians as well. So that even though a man is living a good life, a righteous life like he should, he, he, can, he just cannot assume that by his life alone, that's going to somehow pass on to his children. He needs to instruct them. That's why we have the passage in Deuteronomy where the command is given to the parents to teach your children, to, to sit them down uh, and to teach them. To teach them when you're walking by the wayside, when they lie down, when they rise up. You want to teach them. You want to instruct them uh, in the ways of the Lord. That's just that, that's to be the normal way of living life. But here again we see that uh, this young man doesn't, is not going to be blessed by God because of his father's righteousness. Yeah, that's, that's not going to happen to him. He's being held accountable for what he has done. Verse 14. Now suppose he has a son who sees all the sins his father has committed. And though he sees them, he does not do likewise. Now this, I think, is an amazing verse. Because it's telling us here that we have a man who is, maybe it's this man here that's, that we've just seen who's been doing all, the, all these things in the wrong way. The son is very much aware of the evilness of his father. He clearly sees all of it. It says that he does. He sees all the sins that his father's committed. So he sees them, he understands them, but he chooses to not follow in his father's footsteps. So just because the father is wicked does not automatically mean his son is wicked. We need to make sure that we don't judge others because of their parents, for good or for bad. We also need to recognize that individuals here, that because we're made in the image of God, even though that image is marred by sin, we still have some tremendous abilities and capabilities as human beings. And one of those that makes us unique as human beings is we have this ability to go against what is natural. Okay, animals don't do that. Okay, you can train, we can train animals to do a lot of things, but they're still what they are. In other words, you know, if you can train, you can train a lion to not close his mouth when you stick your head in his mouth, but then when the, if that ever happens and the lion closes his mouth on the lion trainer, we don't say that dirty, rotten lion, he's just so deceitful. No, we just think, that's, that's lions. You stick your head in the lion's mouth, you're taking a risk. It's going to happen sooner or later. All right. So, but what, when it comes to human beings, we actually expect that of each other. An individual may become very angry at, at another individual. You may feel like hitting him. It may be even natural to hit them, and you don't do it. You choose not to do it for whatever the reason. We have the ability to suppress that and do the opposite. So the idea here is that just because an individual, even though we should have sympathy for an individual who is raised in a home where they uh, have seen all kinds of evil, even though that will influence them, that doesn't excuse what they do if they do wrong. It doesn't excuse it. It makes it hard, absolutely. So we want to make sure that we're not somehow just dismissing that there is a very powerful influence in the home or in those around them. That's always there. But that individual, apart from God, the work of God has this ability to think, to evaluate, know that it's evil. goes back to Romans 1. What does Romans 1 say? All men know that God exists. All men know that God is angry about sin. 
All men know what is right, what is wrong. All men know that, uh, that we are to worship God. They, they know these things instinctively or intuitively. They're born with that knowledge. This is just that still played out to, in a sense, this logical conclusion. They still have that capability. It's true that an individual's sin blinds them. An individual's passions will drive them because they choose to give in to their passions. But again, that's not an excuse for what they do. So we may, we may show leniency towards a troubled young person because of the difficulties at home, the bad um, examples that are set at home, the influences that are there, but we should never excuse them for what we still hold them responsible. They know better. Because, and you can see it. You know, just, just in just normal, everyday interaction. An individual can be raised in a horrible uh, home, and yet uh, when they get out in society... They're, they still try to hide their, their, the evil they do. They still try to hide the fact that they're lying. Why are they doing all of that? If they just don't care, the ones who don't care, we actually have a special label for them. Those are sociopaths. All right? But the idea is, is that, that that is still within them. They have that ability. So when we then talk to an individual, we, you never want to allow that. So like sometimes you may talk about the gospel and you, you tell the individual that what they've done is wrong and they've sinned and they're separated from God and they may get angry and say, well, you don't understand. You weren't raised as I was raised. And that's true. You weren't. And you can be thankful that you weren't. You don't, you don't necessarily say that to them at that point. But, you know, they're trying to find an excuse. And then you can let them say all those things. Say, well, this is what I know. God has made you in his image. And the way you've been raised is tragic. Absolutely. And the influence uh, of your home is heavy on you. Absolutely. God knows your heart. And God knows this. You still didn't have to do what you did. And you did it. And he holds you responsible. He holds your parents responsible for what they do. And he holds your parents responsible for failing you. But he holds you responsible for what you do. That's not mean. Our world views that as being cruel and mean, but that's not. That's, we are treating an individual like, they are, like an individual who's created in the image of God. That's treating an individual with dignity. We don't believe that person is just some kind of a poor animal who just can't help themselves. So here, again, we have this in uh, verse 14. We have a young man who sees all the sins of his father, and he then makes the choice to not do likewise. And then, it, again, it explains the same list of things that he's now not going to do. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or raise his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. He doesn't oppress anyone, hold collateral or commit robbery. He gives his bread to the hungry. He covers the naked with clothing. He keeps his hand from harming the poor, not taking interest or profit in a, on a loan. My, my, uh, he practices my ordinances and follows my statutes. Such a person will not die for his father's iniquity. He will certainly live. So God is not going to punish the son for the sins of the father. Now there are times that the son will suffer the consequences of the father's sins. That may happen. And it often happens. In all kinds of ways. You know, the, the young man may have some disadvantages in life because of what his father has done. Disadvantages growing up, disadvantages in all kinds of ways because, and so he's suffering the consequences of what his father's done. But God is not falling around saying, I'm going to get you because your father did this, you're not going to escape. That's not what God's doing. So we have to make sure we're clear on these things. We live in a sinful world. We oftentimes suffer, we will suffer as a result of someone else's sin. 
We know that happens. A drunk driver kills someone who doesn't even know them. They suffer because of this individual's irresponsibility and sin. So when it comes to this individual here, he's going to live. And, and there is this idea in Israel that they sometimes believe that the offspring should then be also punished for the sins of the father. And God says, no, that's, that's not how this works. Verse 18, as for his father, he will die for his own iniquity because he practiced fraud, robbed his brother, did what was wrong among his people. But you may ask, why doesn't the son suffer punishment for the father's iniquity? Now, the reason why that's being asked is there was, there's a belief, and you see it sometimes uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the Old Testament. It was believed, or it was a practice, that if you were going to curse an individual, so let's say that I was going to pronounce a curse against Tim Wade. All right? So if we were living in Old Testament times, if I, want to, if I want to curse him, I would never pronounce the curse against Tim because that would then mean that his father is the one who's affected. I would curse his children. I would curse his children, and then that reflects poorly on Tim, and that way Tim is truly cursed. That's how they would view it. So then, if you want the father to be punished, uh, really punished for his iniquity, you would then punish his children, and by inflicting this punishment on his children, you then are really, really giving it to him. And God says that's not the way that he operates. He holds each individual fully responsible for their, de- for, for their sin. And that's what he says here. He will die for his own iniquity. This is what he practiced and goes to the list. So again, verse 19, you may ask, why doesn't the son suffer punishment for the father's iniquity? Since the son has done what is just and right, carefully observing all my statutes, he will certainly live. The person who sins is the one who will die. A son won't suffer punishment for the father's iniquity. And a father won't suffer punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous person will be on him. And the wickedness of the wicked person will be on him. Now we know as Christians that sometimes the way this is, the entire thing is played out, just to kind of make sure we have a, a full grasp of things, the righteousness of the righteous is going to be on them. That person may not experience In fact, he won't experience the full reward of the Lord for his obedience in this life. We know that we, all of us, are looking forward to being with the Lord one day and we will be rewarded for the things that we do for him. And there will be some, maybe many, who won't receive much reward at all here. You know, there are many, as we know, in other countries who are suffering immensely for being believers and they will be killed because they are believers. Uh, And we know that they will be richly rewarded in heaven. That's not just some nice thing to say. That's going to happen. God's going to do that. We also know that the wicked, who sometimes it seems get away with their wickedness, where they live a life of ease their entire life, and even though they may meet some horrible, violent, unexpected end, the bottom line is we know they will escape nothing. We know that God is going to judge them for what? Every sin they commit. That's why it's important to remember. Sometimes people will say that, you know, um, uh, how, you know what, what's, what sin is God going to punish the non-believer for? And we, we say, well, you know, they, they haven't believed in Christ, so will be punished for that. Well, that's true. But remember that an individual is not necessarily going to hell because they've refused Christ. They're going to hell for all of their sin. That's one of them, absolutely. But it's not like all the other sins don't count, and that's the only one that's, that's going to be held against them. They're going to be judged for everything they've done and said and haven't done that's against the law of God. And they'll be punished for that, completely for that. And so 
uh, what God says here is right and true in every way. So we want to make sure that these are the kinds of things that we are explaining and manifesting and teaching our children. That God holds us responsible. That God holds dad responsible. I have to give an account to God. And you tell your children they have to give an account to God. But there's, that we're not teaching them that so they can become afraid of God. It's not, it's not you know, they live in fear of God. Except we still do want to teach them what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We want to teach them the proper fear of the Lord. So it's not that God is a boogeyman hiding in the closet ready to pounce on them because of some bad thing they do. God is a loving and just Father. And yes, He does see all the things that we do. Absolutely. And He will bring all things into account. And all men are already condemned and doomed because of their sin. And the only way of escape for them, the only way of escape for me, is to believe in Christ. And so we want to make sure that we are finding various ways to teach them these things that the Bible is talking about. And if we don't do that, then again we're setting ourselves up as kind of being the sole authority in their life and we do a great disservice to our children. So then, uh, <clears throat> um, I'm done. <laughs> As I, you don't hear a sermon done that way. I'm done. <laughs> but I'm done. <laughs> but uh, I trust that uh, um, Ezekiel 18 will become a, an important passage for you in your life uh, to, to see how it is that God deals with us. There, there's still God is fair, God is just, but God is also merciful, kind, and loving. And we want to make sure that we are teaching that to our children by, by living these things out and letting them know that we willingly place ourselves and submit ourselves to the commands of God himself and that we, are, we want to teach them to do the same thing as us except better. We want them to avoid some of our foolish mistakes. Uh, and, and again, let them understand the reason why. Uh, and I think that um, if we do that, again, there's no guarantee that when you raise your children they will become believers. There's no guarantee of that. I'm not, I'm not making these promises that if you do all these things the way we're talking about, that your kids will be wonderful. The odds are in your favor, right, because you find what God has said. But remember, all kids are born with a sin nature, with a natural hatred for God and the things of God. That's why as we seek to do these things, A, we don't do them in our own strength, and not only do we ask God to give us strength and wisdom, we pray for them, and we pray for their souls. Because without the work of God Almighty on their heart, no matter what you do, you might be able to control them for a while. But sooner or later, you will no longer be able to control them. And uh, so we want to make sure that, there's, that we recognize that there are no guarantees uh, when it comes to this. That, uh, so we don't want to start accusing God of saying, well, I did all these things and it didn't work. Uh, it's, it's all about the grace of God and his kindness to us. Uh, but I do think that if we follow what he says here, he says that he will bless us. He says he'll watch over us. There is an expectation that our children will come to know Christ. Um, and I think we have a right to have that expectation and expect our Heavenly Father to, uh, uh, to save our children. But again, at the same time, we don't do so with arrogance and we definitely don't do so depending upon our own strength. And we also don't do so saying, well, I know I haven't done things right for the first 10 years, but I can catch up. That don't, it, it, you can't catch up. Just can't do that. 
We don't want to be the parent who really does love God, but it's lousy parents, and then when your kid turns 16, pray for a miracle. We want to raise them in the right way. And uh, um, as I said to you before, we make mistakes along the way, admit your mistakes to them, ask them to forgive you, and move forward. Um, Because no parent has ever been perfect. Uh, It's just not going to happen. And yet God, in his graciousness, maybe in spite of us, is still wonderful uh, and will do a great work in their life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to recognize uh, the truth of the word and the strength of the things that you say here in this passage. We pray, Lord, that it would become a part of the way that we think, the way that we approach life. We ask, Lord, you would help us to be firm yet gentle, to be strong but to be uh, kind and understanding, to be just and merciful. Help us, Father, to be loving. Help us, Father, to be consistent. Help us, Father, to be consistent at home, to be consistent at work, to be consistent wherever we are. Father, we're so grateful that you are unbelievably patient with us. We thank you, Father, for the work that you've done in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for how you, how and where you've brought us to. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in our lives and not even allow ourselves to get in the way. We pray, Lord, even at times that you would overlook our own stubbornness and you would do the work that must be done in us. That, Father, we may experience your love and the great joy and satisfaction that comes in knowing you and living for you. Father, we ask now for your blessing on each one here tonight, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.